So I'm Dr. Trent Garrison. I'm the president-elect of Kentucky Academy of Science. And uh, before we get started and introduce our keynote for today, I wanted to first of all thank our sponsors, Sullivan University, Eastern Kentucky University College of Science, and the Kentucky Science Center. And we would um, encourage all of you, anyone listening who is not already a member, to become a member of Kentucky Academy of Science. You can go to our homepage. You can just search for it in Google or kentuckyscience.org and go to the tab that says membership. It's very cheap and we welcome anybody. We, we believe that a, a very scientifically literate populace uh, makes, a, makes a better commonwealth. Uh, also, just a couple more quick announcements. We will be live streaming a keynote tomorrow afternoon, Dr. Atchison, who's going to be talking about inclusivity in science education. And for those who are interested in uh, having any questions answered, um, I think Dr. Stack can stick around for a few minutes if his, if his schedule will allow to, um, to answer some questions. I do have, I've received four so far, so uh, you can post those in the chat as well. And Amanda's going to help me with those. So let me give you a little bit of background uh, for a keynote today. Dr. Stack was appointed by Governor Bashir in early 2020 as Commissioner for Public Health. He is board certified, a board certified emergency physician with over 20 years of experience. He was the first board certified emergency physician to be elected as AMA Board of Trustees. And in 2015, he was the youngest president of the AMA in a very long time, since 1854. He's also an adjunct professor at the University of Tennessee. Uh, he did his medical education and residency at Ohio State and a master's of business administration at UT. Uh, Dr. Stack and I have communicated on a, a number of occasions with uh, COVID studies and things like that in the past. So it's an honor to welcome him here. Um, we very much appreciate your time. I know you're a very busy person. And, uh, you know, we, we've been working on this meeting for a long time. And we thought you would be a, a, a really excellent person to have at this meeting, given uh, everything that's going on here. And when we planned this meeting, we didn't know you know, the, the COVID numbers would be what they are at this point in time. So uh, we just had some of our highest days recently, so uh, uh, very timely. So with that, I will turn it over to Dr. Stack. Thank you very much for being here. Uh, Trent, thank you very much for having me. Um, can you hear me okay? Yes. We're good, wonderful. Um, so it's a pleasure to be here. I, I did take a look before coming on at the Kentucky Academy of Sciences website and I had a chance to look at the agenda for this meeting, which I've got here on another screen. And I, I got to say, I'm impressed. There is quite, quite the list of interesting talks and topics and the diversity of topics you've got here. And I will tell you that in the context of such a, a rich and wonderful array of scientific exploration, my talk is gonna be very different. So it's gonna be more along the lines of, of a keynote, but I hope, if you stay with me for this journey, and I'll take you for maybe about 25 minutes and then stay for questions. Um, I hope you'll find some value in the, the, the non-COVID message that I leave uh, throughout this in addition to the COVID information I hope I get to share with you. So I'm gonna take you on a little journey. I'm gonna um, share with you uh, things you already know, but I'll share it within the context as I see it, and I'll give you some perspective on how I view this disease we're facing, uh, the journey we've been on, where we currently are and where we're heading. And then I'm gonna try to put it in context 
of your mission here, as I understand it. So I looked again at your website and I see that your mission is to foster scientific discovery and understanding in Kentucky. And I wanna share that, but I, I wanna share some thoughts about how I see myself um, in the context of science and the role that I occupy and the value I place in it, but then also how I use it. So let's talk COVID here for a few minutes. So as you all well know, I suspect, uh, SARS-CoV-2, SARS-Coronavirus-2 was not a known pathogen in the human species until late last year. So sometime we think in November, December last year, China had its first human cases and those cases uh, started to spread within the uh, province of Wuhan and they spread very rapidly. They spread so rapidly that, that there was evidence you know, satellite imagery of them building multiple large hospitals to accommodate the surge in patients. The patients were particularly sick. Uh, they required intensive care unit level of medical care, and a lot of them had respiratory failure requiring mechanical ventilation, all of which things uh, are generally resources available in relative small quantities in society and which were severely overrun caused a, a lockdown of an area that was well over 30 million people. <clears throat> and the kinds of activities you just find hard to believe. I mean, they're staggering, absolutely staggering in their sheer scale. That disease, a disease none of us knew about that did not exist to our knowledge, that caused such rapid disruption for so many people, took almost no time whatsoever to spread around the world. So by the time we were in February, you had cases in Northern Italy. And if you look back at the first, uh, there was a, a scientific uh, communication, I think it was probably a, a letter to the editor or a scientific letter in, in the Journal of the American Medical Association. There was a, a, an Italian critical care physician who wrote about, and it almost reads like a Charles Dickens novel, you know, like it was the best of days, it was the worst of days where it starts out on such and such a date, a patient presented to the emergency department with the following. And here's what was absolutely astounding. The metaphor of a tsunami is absolutely, I think, applicable to what they experienced. It, a tsunami, for those of you who have ever watched a video of it, doesn't, it's not like a, a sudden instant cataclysmic problem. It's sort of like you just notice the water levels rising at the beach and then the water level keeps rising and it doesn't stop rising, it continually rises. And then once it continues to come, just a steady unrelenting wall of water continues to come for a seemingly endless period of time until it just floods and overwhelms everything in its path. So hopefully I've described a tsunami for those of you who know it somewhat well visually, that's what happened with this illness in China, in Northern Italy, and then in other parts of Europe, when the patients first showed up, when they first saw, oh my gosh, we've got a couple of people who fit that description. Very shortly after that, you went from a couple to many, to lots, to oh my gosh, the hospital is overrun within days. All right, it's, it was that dramatic. So in the beginning, when it went from China in December to the first signals, oh my gosh, there could be a problem over there in January, to Northern Italy being overrun by February. Then we had our first case 
in Seattle at the end of February or sometime mid to late February. And it was all a travel related illness at that point. The single biggest thing you could do to curtain or, or curtail its spread was identify people who had traveled to high risk areas and isolate them or quarantine them and try to mitigate the spread. But then we had our first cases in the first week of March and started popping up everywhere. So New York had its first cases here in Kentucky, Friday, March 6th was our first case. But over that span of a week or two, you started having states across the nation have positive cases. Now at that time, we were using tools that epidemiologists created. So you had essentially, this was, I don't know, for those of you who are, who are basic scientists, this, I would think this would be fascinating. If you wanna look at modeling and how you use data, this was, we started from a, a standstill and so if you have no disease and you dropped it into a community and you had unmitigated spread, what would happen? That's wonderful set of variables to do modeling, right? All those models were incredibly useful and every single one of them were entirely wrong, all right? So, and I mean both things, non-pejoratively. They showed us just how horrible unmitigated spread of SARS-CoV-2 could be in a population. And we knew, and those models were built based off of real experience in places in China and in Northern Italy. And so we knew that they were real scenarios. And then it happened in New York City, right? So, I mean, it jumped to a third continent. It happened in New York City. And so we knew that the, uh, there was validity to the models, but then we started to uh, interact with the system and change the variables, right? So. The, the terror that was unleashed, and I would say it was an informed terror. This was not panic. This was informed terror. This was senior level decision makers advised by public health and science experts saying, this is really bad. If we don't take dramatic actions, the consequences will be of the sort none of us would, would accept in terms of loss of human life. And at that point, we didn't even know about the potential for long-term disease. We just knew about the short-term disease. And so what you saw happen, I, I think, you know, is really unprecedented in the modern era. You had whole nations quarantining entire regions, uh, locking out visitors from other countries and shutting down whole societies. And so you actually had whole states describing shelter in place as a public health order. I mean, that would be inconceivable. If you were to have asked this scientific community or the public health community, what do you think the likelihood is in the United States of America, governors would be declaring whole societies shut down. You'd say, oh my God, that, you would not imagine that in, in the Western democracy, you wouldn't imagine it, but it was happening in democracies around the world which is really a sign that I would hope people who attend to science and reason would say, this is not a drill. This is a lot of people who have access to the best information and advisors available, making some pretty dramatic decisions because the consequences look so horrible. And so um, in those early months, there were all sorts of crises, right? Who would have thought that putting all of your supply chain in China would be a bad idea? Like who would have thought, and for, I'm not picking on China, any nation, right? If you consolidate things so much that the failure of that one area causes a cataclysmic collapse, that's kind of a problem. 
So, you know, a lot of our personal protective equipment for medical uh, care is manufactured in the Far East. And so when the Far East was the first region hit and they went offline, guess what? Their manufacturing capacity was, was hampered. And then guess what? When you now have a new global pandemic with a pathogen that rapidly went around the world and all of a sudden, all of humanity needs the same stuff and the people producing it aren't producing it, guess what happens? You have a real scarcity. You have a real scarcity real fast. And so at that time, people didn't know about the disease, didn't have the resources needed to protect themselves, even in the healthcare setting. And so the only option was really, you had to shut things down. You had to try to prevent the spread of that disease. You had to try to prepare the people upon whom we are all gonna to rely to keep us safe and treat us if we get sick. And you had to learn as fast as you can. So now in the context of science, this is, there's some things about this that we should just marvel at where humanity has come in terms of our use of science and ability to do stuff. The genome for this virus was mapped really in early January. I mean, just think about that. Remember the Human Genome Project, how long it took to map the human genome. And here they mapped the genome for this virus and posted it for public knowledge all in the early January for anyone who could use it to try to um, uh, design uh, mitigation strategies, therapeutics, vaccines. And now we have a process for, for vaccine development that typically takes seven to 15 years. And for some diseases like HIV, we still don't have a vaccine. And that was in the mid my 1980s that that first arrived. So we have managed in the span of less than 12 months to go from, well, let's say, let's say a little over 12 months if you wanna go back to December um, by the time we're done with this. About one year, go from pathogen identification, basic science development, production of candidate vaccines, more than a hundred of them across the world, numerous trials underway, multiple candidates in phase two and phase three of clinical research trials. And we have at least two candidates who we believe within weeks will have reached sufficient enrollment now, we know they've reached enrollment. The challenge is, will they have enough case experience to be able to then determine the efficacy of the vaccine in addition to its, uh, its safety? But we very well could have in the United States two vaccine candidates being considered for emergency use as early as late November or December. So that is a one-year pathogen discovery to vaccine approval process. Now, nothing about that is standardized. Nothing about that is the typical thing. They had to do a lot of parallel tracking of processes. They had to be willing to put a lot of money on the table to front economic risk for developers. But, but just think about that is nothing short of a modern human marvel to have pulled that off as quickly as we did. Now we have to hope they work. Um, and the proof will be, and in, in once we start using them, do we actually blunt further this disease? Um, so the other thing I'll draw attention to in these early months, in addition to being healthy at home, is what we called it here in Kentucky, or um, shelter in place is what other states called it. We, um, we have had to evolve our messaging continuously based on new knowledge and understanding. So part of this was, 
in the beginning, the only masks that were generally available were medical grade masks, right? So they were procedural masks that you could buy. And guess what? Guess who needed those masks? Healthcare workers. And guess who didn't have enough of them? Healthcare workers, right? And we also had an illness that in March and April, we had only had experience in the United States of less than two months knowledge about that disease. There was a lot we didn't know. So the messaging initially was don't go getting masks and wearing them out in public. And you know what? That was the right advice at that time because what were people doing? They were competing with healthcare workers to buy the same masks. And then the people in the hospital who had to have it couldn't have it. And we didn't even know, is it going to prevent infection in the outside world? So you couldn't really advocate it strongly then. And there was not an alternative like we have now with cloth and other material masks, right? Well, as we got more knowledge, we got more understanding, we got more information, I think we feel all very compellingly persuaded now that putting some kind of barrier over your nose and mouth to keep your secretions to yourself is an incredibly effective tool to mitigate or blunt or reduce the risk of exposure from an infected person to a non-infected person. I don't think any credible public health expert has any doubt that it's a useful tool. There are other things we can comment about. Well, do people wash them enough? If they touch their face and their mask more often or too much, can they contaminate themselves? All of those things are legitimate, but they are smaller points in the context of a much larger point, which is we're trying to keep our secretions to ourselves and away from other people, all right? So I don't think anyone has any doubt now that the, that the non-medical grade masks for the general public are a very effective and very useful mitigation tool to blunt the spread of this disease. Of course, social distancing is the ultimate thing. If we all just stayed 30 to 40 feet away from each other, then we'd never have to wear any mask, particularly if we did it all outside, right? That's just not consistent with any kind of human existence that any of us can imagine. It's hard enough to stay six feet away from each other, let alone do 30 or 40 feet away from each other. So, so the combination of space and masks are the two biggest tools we have right now. And you know, that's old school, right? You've all seen, or many of you have seen pictures from the 1918 influenza epidemic where they had uh, you know, advertisements saying, you know, failure to wear a mask result in imprisonment and stuff like that. You know I mean, so it's the same stuff. All that's old is new again. And this was from over a century ago, but it works. So for now and for the foreseeable future, you've heard all of this stuff. You've heard all of this. Wash your hands, wear a mask, watch your space, stay home if you're sick and get tested if, if you think you have COVID-19 so you have that information and you can know. So those are the same tools we've had all along, but the way we've used them and the way we've um, promoted them has changed over the course of this emergency response as we've learned more, uh, understood more, and actually been able to demonstrate the effectiveness of those tools. So where are we right now? So this pathogen is surging widely throughout the United States, throughout Europe, and throughout a number of other countries. It is clearly escalating. It is particularly worrisome for us here in the Northern Hemisphere because winter is coming upon us. And so people are gonna not be able to do outdoor activities like they were before. They're gonna be drawn inside to stay warm. And when we go into closed, confined spaces with less air circulation, less ultraviolet radiation, less distance between ourselves, and quite honestly, more social pressure to deviate from wearing mask use, right? So 
we all wear these, well, I shouldn't say we all, I hope we all wear, or many of us certainly in this community for this kind of audience are wearing our masks because it makes just good sense. But I think we all know there are social pressures that make it difficult, right? We're, we're, we're very social species, right? We rely on seeing each other, facial expressions, body language. We rely on physical touch, right? I mean, putting your hand on a friend's shoulder, giving a hug, European, the, the two pecks on the cheek, if you're gonna give you know, the kiss as a greeting, that physical closeness is an inimical part of our human journey. And this disease forces you to have to do without that. And so when you get together with friends and family and others, the social pressure, our normal human hardwired behavior is in direct opposition to what we need people to do to not spread disease. So I would tell you that the disease is surging already and that's before the really cold weather came. Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's Eve, these are alarming opportunities to make this whole thing go thermonuclear because you combine pretty much all of the worst things you could possibly hope for, for a respiratory pathogen in the middle of a pandemic. You put everybody inside, you put large numbers of people inside because it's a social gathering. You bring people from different households in different geographic regions. You put them around a small table. You take your mask off so you can eat and drink, laugh and sing and joke and shout. And you do all the things you would exactly not want people to do to spread an infection. And let me just add a few other items for extra difficulty points. 20 to 40% of people have no symptoms. And yet we know that a proportion of those people with no known symptoms spread infection. And, and let's make it even worse. Some of those people are asymptomatic because they will never develop symptoms, but others are just pre-symptomatic, meaning that they could come over and have Thanksgiving dinner with you. Everybody has a fun time. And the next day they develop a fever. And, and we have shown pretty clearly that people are infectious for up to 48 hours, probably before they develop symptoms. So you can be asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic, but the end result is the same. You got no symptoms and you're spreading disease unknowingly. So it is not enough for people to say, well, I checked myself, I'm feeling fine. It's not enough. It may be enough for the common cold where it's inconvenient if you give someone a cough and a runny nose and two days of NyQuil and sleeping at home and staying home from work. It's a totally different thing if you give someone COVID and they take it into a nursing home or they take it into um, you know, a hospital or they take it to a vulnerable person living in their household. Totally different situation. So why are we surging? There's pandemic fatigue and that has set in everywhere, right? Is anyone, I mean, I can see a few faces here, but I think there's a lot more people watching from a distance. I mean, anybody here sick of this? Does anyone want this just to go away, right? Well, magical thinking won't make it go away. So let's just put that out there. You can't wish it away. It's not a hoax, it's real. And there's, uh, I haven't looked at the total today, but there's certainly over 230,000 Americans who have died from this, over a million people in the world. Um, the all-cause mortality in a city like New York is through the roof. It's more than four times what it was for the previous three years. So clearly there is a huge surge in mortality. And COVID is now, I think, one of the top three causes, all-cause death in the United States, coronavirus this year. So this is a really, really big deal. The other thing is, unfortunately, 
public health has become politicized. So a mask is nothing more than a barrier to keep your snot to yourself, okay? Your snot and your spit and your own proximity. That's all a mask is. There's no other statement being made. There's no other comment being made. It is pure public health, but it has become politicized. In the United States and Brazil, other places, there's other, I mean, we're not alone in the United States. And I'll touch on that in a minute, the value of perspective. And then there is this other part that kind of goes into the politicization, but is not exactly the same. There is kind of a smoldering repudiation of science kind of in general, right? There's sort of this growing, and maybe it isn't growing, but, but maybe it's attention humanity always has. I, I don't know. But there is this repudiation of science and this skepticism about the things that science recommends or advises or observes. And I think that combination of things, pandemic fatigue, politicization, and just this trend or this resistance against science contribute to this fatigue. I think the biggest thing is just overall fatigue and wanting it to be gone though. There's a lot of people hurting and let's not lose sight of the human side, not just the people who are sick or go in the hospital. People have lost their jobs, they've lost their businesses, kids aren't in school, people have lost their social activity. Um, it, it has been horribly devastating, this virus, in all sorts of ways it's disrupted our lives. And so I think pandemic fatigue, probably more than anything else, comes about from that and then the politicization. So um, we would predict that increasing cases will result in increasing hospitalizations and ICU admissions. And that is what we're seeing in Kentucky. So we are, steadily, we are seeing a steady increase in the number of people hospitalized from COVID-19, the number of people going into the intensive care unit. Now, that's, that's not good. And it, it will overwhelm some parts of our resources at some point in the weeks and months ahead. But it is different than what we saw, at least it appears different than what China experienced in Northern Italy. Um, even though there's a substantial proportion of people who are openly violating the public health guidance, even though we don't have a cure, even though we don't have a vaccine, we do have still a large proportion who are socially distancing. We still have a large proportion who are wearing masks. We now know that a dirt cheap, multi-decade old steroid, you know, called Decadron, and it's probably a therapeutic class effect. So steroids can help in the right setting with people who have severe COVID-19 infection. Uh, we've also learned how to handle better people who have respiratory problems. And so I think when you put all of these things together, and we're taking a lot of aggressive steps to still protect the most vulnerable populations. So Here's the thing, people get falsely confident that, well, just, just keep it away from the nursing home residents. Well, it's not that easy because the staff members go from place to place. They often work in different nursing homes and then they bring in infection and they don't know because they're asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic. And then now one person brings in infection, infects one or two residents. And next thing you know, the whole place starts having infection run through it. But even though all of these measures are imperfect, in aggregate, they have blunted the severity that we would otherwise expect. So none of those models from the spring really have any applicability now because it's not at all likely that that set of variables will ever unfold the way that those models initially were conceived. They were, again, non-science believers have a hard time with this. 
all those models were wrong, but they were all very helpful. They all helped to inform decision-making actions that had to be taken. But in the fact that they didn't predict what would happen is, is the wrong observation to make to criticize the value of them. They helped to guide interventions so that we never saw the reality that they predicted could have unfolded, right? So they were very useful. Um, so where are we? I've got a few more points here and then uh, my wind down. Um, it's gonna be a hard winter. The holidays are gonna be a real risk to people. And if, if this audience is uh, willing to listen and be persuaded, and if others um, are willing to, or able, you can influence other people, I urge you, wear, wear a mask, stay away from everybody you're not living with, at least a distance away. Uh, this is sort of like the last man standing kind of thing, or last woman standing as the case may be. You want to be one of the last people who gets infected, because the longer you push off your infection, the better the treatments are likely to be, the more likely we have adequate resources if we've been able to avoid a major outbreak. You want to delay it as long as you can. And let me just say, and I realize I have a bias, I have a conflict of interest here. I'm a state health commissioner and I'm about to talk about my own state. We have every reason to be proud of our public health success in Kentucky. When you look at our population adjusted mortality, uh, so first of all, on almost every important public health measure, Kentucky is in the bottom. We have the most obesity, the most diabetes, the most tobacco use, the most substance use disorder, the most undiagnosed, untreated cancer, okay? I mean, let me just make you feel real good about being a Kentuckian. We are unfortunately in the bottom five to 10 on every major public health metric that really matters, okay? But we are in the top 20 as far as being the best, as far as the lowest case adjust or population adjusted mortality for COVID-19. So to be in the top fifth for COVID mortality performance, well, we are in the bottom fifth percentile for almost everything else. That's a pretty substantial accomplishment, I think. I'm biased, but I think so. So, and, and I think what people unfortunately misunderstand is the economic, um, the economic consequences. I think there will be more and more studies that will prove and will show pretty compellingly what if you don't take these steps to keep people safe, the virus through its own actions drive the same behaviors eventually. It's just a lot more people have to die or get disabled in order to reach the same result. So I don't think that Kentucky's paid a largely disproportionate economic cost for these measures. I think in fact, we've saved a lot of lives and a lot of morbidity um, probably at similar or comparable economic cost to a society that chose not to do this. So, um, but that's my biased impression. So now let me wind up here. That's how I see COVID-19 and, and where we are. We're not powerless to change this future. Our actions of choosing to socially distance, wear a mask and follow the guidance um, really can have an impact. We've proven that. And I wanna share these general thoughts now. Um, I'm sure an observation I've observed about myself for many years. So I'm an emergency physician by background. Um, I was practicing emergency medicine all the way up till March 1st and had every intention of continuing to do so. And then this annoying pandemic came along and I became a public health commissioner. And there was just no time left. And quite honestly, 
I couldn't go into one of the higher risk areas at, for risk of getting infected and then go into the governor's office every day and do this job. And there was no emotional, physical, or mental energy left after dealing with this job to then go and be the kind of emergency physician I needed to be for the people who relied on me there. So, but up until then, I would describe myself in, in, on different days as I thought about it as an applied scientist. So I don't think anyone will ever accuse me of advancing fundamental basic science research to benefit humanity. That has not been my journey in life. But I have, I think, certainly been an applied scientist. As an emergency physician, now as a public health physician, I use science every day in my life to make decisions, to appraise evidence, to reach conclusions, and then to try to make recommendations for action. I use science a lot. I love science. I remember loving science in biology as a kid in grade school and physics and chemistry. I have loved it for as long as I can remember. And then I look at your list of lectures that you're going to have at your meeting um, these few days. Um, one that just looks really in, engaging and in, uh, engages my curiosity for all those different things. Although I've had to learn quite a lot about stuff I never knew about when I took this job. But I want to encourage people who do that to both enjoy knowledge for knowledge's sake, but I want to bridge that to these other last points in conclusion. Science without the humanities will never reach its full potential. Um, those of us who are science-minded have this false belief uh, or false understanding, belief is the wrong term, false understanding at some time, or maybe even an overconfidence that people are persuaded by numbers, figures, and facts. And that is not the case. And I don't say this to be pejorative. I say this, we are social beings we are persuaded by people and we're persuaded by people who tell stories with which we can relate and people who inspire confidence and trust in us. So for all of us who are scientists, who want our science to have impact beyond ourselves, we will have more impact if either we ourselves or people with whom we are associated are able to translate the facts and figures and knowledge and learning that we spend so much time creating into stories and narratives and uh, communications that other people can have confidence in, relate to, have trust in and belief in. That, so you have to have both in order to do that. Um, I also will say is people give presentations and now this audience is probably, this is totally wrong because based on a lot of those talks, there's gonna to have to be a lot of people using some graphs and charts and statistics to, <laughs> to tell their story. And that's appropriate in this setting. But I think if there are some things, maybe my journey in life has given me uh, a lot of experience on communication, I hope is one part of it. I would encourage you whenever you are communicating in most of your settings and you want your science to be received by others in a way that it's, instills excitement and curiosity, which I think is something most everyone wants to do, right? If you really are passionate about something, you would love to share with others that joy that you experience doing that work. Less is more. People will not remember all the facts and figures you tell. They will not remember it. Now, maybe if you're a PhD talking to three other PhDs about a lab protocol, they'll remember, okay? So in that audience, that's different. But if you're a PhD talking to a group of 50 people trying to help them understand why entomology, well, 
which is the one that is the study of bugs and the study of words. And etymology and entomology, I think those are the two different words, right? But so if you want to talk about either of those things, though, because the average person won't know what entomology or etymology is, if you were to talk about those things, less is more. Use a small number of facts or, or lessons you want to convey and bring them to life with stories. And remember that actually the words we say, you will... I guarantee you, however many of you are listening to me right now, you will remember very little of what I said. What you'll take from this, if someone were to ask you a week from now, would be, did we like that guy? Did he seem sincere? Did he seem trustworthy? Was he believable? And let me tell you another thing. It won't be predominantly because of the words I said at all. It'll be, was the tone, did the tone in his voice resonate with me? Did his body language connect? Did he seem relaxed? Did he seem sincere? Did he seem fake? Did he sound angry? Those things are going to be what leaves an impression. And a week from now, what you will remember is not the timeline I described about COVID-19 or the miracle of the vaccine development process or the public health journey we've gone on from the spring until now. You won't remember that. You'll remember some piece or some essence of it. You're just going to remember, hey, that guy, Dr. Stack, that we see on TV with that governor guy talked with us for a while. And did I like him or not? And, and am I willing to follow me? If he says some simple message, am I going to trust him the next time I hear a simple message from him? And so think about that when you as scientists are telling your stories, how people receive your message and how you can make it more likely they will receive it, enjoy it, and want to have more of the message you offer. Um, last two things. Uh, perspective is invaluable. I encourage you to have a wide-ranging curiosity. Study the stuff you love and be the content expert in your depth, but, but have a curiosity about other stuff. Read about history, read about literature, pick up a poetry book every now and then, even if you don't like it, just to see what it is. Have a curiosity about other things. My observation, there's a book, I always like to recommend books. There's a book on my bookshelf behind me here called Range, R-A-N-G-E. Um, it talks about why generalists rule in a specialist world or something like that. If you want to read something, because I bet there's a lot of specialists in this audience here today, read the book Range. I think you'll enjoy it. And think about it this way. If I were to give you an analogy, it is like a, a Renaissance uh, woman or man with a wide ranging curiosity. You start to recognize patterns across different domains. And you may say, you know what? So I'm, I have had to, with a team to solve a lot of big problems in COVID-19. And, and it may occur like, oh my gosh, that problem we have to solve for PPE, that's kind of like what, what I saw at the bank when I was there. They had a process, that process looks similar. And oh, maybe someone else has already created the process I needed. I just had to recognize the similarities and then apply it in a different setting, right? So the concept of that book range is that generalists are like these cross-pollinating honeybees. And if any of you heard me in the spring, I don't mean a bad honeybee, like a COVID honeybee spreading disease and pollinating COVID. I mean a good honeybee spreading ideas and thoughts and, and pollinating. And so another way you get that perspective in addition to fostering it in yourself is make sure you have diverse teams. And by that, I mean diverse curiosities, diverse expertise, diverse um, 
personal demographic backgrounds, gender and, and other, you know, race and ethnicity and other. Diversity helps to mitigate against blind spots and avoid avoidable errors. And it helps to promote ingenuity and creativity and thinking outside the box. And my last point would be listen to the person who disagrees with you. Because if you sit a bunch of people around a table and everyone agrees, you are almost certainly underperforming and you, are, you don't have the team you need to achieve outsized success. You need to listen to the disconfirming opinions because those are the people who are going to help you avoid the things you would have otherwise missed. So I realize this is totally not a basic science talk. It is, I hope, very much unlike what is on the rest of your really otherwise quite curious agenda. Um, but I hope this leaves you with some things to think about uh, and, and uh, was what you were looking for, Trent. And I'm happy. I'm here to the top of the hour, so I'm happy to answer any questions. All right. Well, great. Thank you so much for that. Uh, you make some really good points. And I think, you know, everybody here is, are either scientists or science students. And, uh, you know, we're, we're broadcasting on, on different channels. So we have, I don't know, uh, maybe 150 people watching or something. So we have lots of comments coming in. And uh, lots of these comments are, you know, thank you. You're doing a great job. And thanks for recommending the book and, and those sorts of things. But uh, we do have lots of questions, so it's going to be tough to to narrow those down. So what I thought I would do, uh, and Amanda, feel free to jump in, is I thought I would prioritize the ones that are in this group chat from KAS members first. And uh, some of them are pretty lengthy, so I'll just I'll just summarize. We'll just we'll just do a lightning round. Let's do these uh, you know as quickly as we can, so we can get through maybe quite a few of them. <clears throat> The, course, the first question is from Dan Phelps, who, um, who's been a longtime member here and, and done a lot in this, in this state re with regard to science, is what happens if state legislature tries to limit things like the mask mandate? Um, what can we do to support the governor's ability to mandate public health measures? Well, let me, let me reframe that. Um, mandates have been necessary, unfortunately, because absent mandates, people just don't do certain things. Um, but I have said from the very beginning that I don't want to mandate people. I want to inspire people to do the right thing. I, I don't agree with Machiavelli that it's better to be feared than to be loved. I, I think that's a very short-term strategy. Um, it is better to inspire people to a course of action because then they own it, they share it, they believe in it, and they choose it freely. So I would like to inspire people to do the, the things that need to be done. The difficulty is we, we look at the world around us and reach very different conclusions. It's a real perplexing challenge <laughs> if you're trying to manage people and populations is we can look at the exact same set of facts and reach completely discordant conclusions. I don't have an answer for that. I think it is just part of the human journey. Um, and the problem is there are some people, no matter how I communicate it, no matter how relaxed I hope I seem and, and sincere and credible, they're just not, I'm not the person they relate to. I, I, I can't overcome that. So, so to your point here, the question, uh, there are three branches of government in our, in our society, in, in the United States, at the state and national level. The legislature passes the laws, the executive branch executes and enforces them, and the judicial branch arbitrates disagreements among those other branches. Um, if the legislature comes uh, into session and chooses to take action, that's their prerogative to do so. People have elected them and they'll do their duty as they determine uh, 
is their duty. And then it'll be my obligation, as long as I'm serving as an appointed official and a governor's obligation to find the ways within the rules that the legislature passes to do the best we can to keep people safe. Now, along the way, I sure hope that there's an open dialogue and people are open to being persuaded by what the evidence shows and what's effective and what can be helpful. And, and I've said, I hope pretty consistently, I'm interested in working with everybody. This is not about politics for me. This is about how do we get through this? And then we can, when COVID's behind us and, and neutralized, then we can all argue with each other again and not have to worry about COVID, right? Absolutely. So, uh, like I said, we're not going to be able to get through all of these, but uh, I will, I'll ask this one. This is something that I've had on my mind a lot lately. Um, again, we're all kind of science-minded people, and I, I have friends who are contract tracers, and um, we've talked about certain amount of times that you have to be in contact with someone to, to contract COVID, and, um, you know, that, that depends on the the situation, indoors versus outdoors versus, you know, di different factors. So assuming someone has, I'm trying to think of the best way to ask this, assuming someone has the average amount of COVID-19 in their body and they're, you know, during their spreading phase, um, indoors, how long would you have to be in contact with that person to, to contract COVID, assuming you're um, I don't know, a few feet away from them and, and in the outdoors. Current CDC guidance defines a contact is 15 minutes of exposure within six feet with or without a mask. So, so the key operative things are in order to avoid an exposure, you have to stay more than six feet away from everybody. Wear a mask if you're even in the same room as other people and you should avoid more than 15 minutes of exposure. Now, that again, it comes from the need to make very concrete recommendations for something that is probably not quite that rigidly concrete. There's three major ways that this disease is uh, transmitted. Let's do these three fingers. It looks funny on my screen. Um, respiratory droplets, aerosols, and, and then surface contamination. Now remember, surface contamination is really just your respiratory droplets or aerosols getting stuck on a surface with viral particles. So surface contamination is the least important of these, but it's still important. You've all seen this. If you go to a church and, and the child next to you is rubbing their runny nose and smearing their hand on the rail in front, and then if you touch that and scratch your nose or your eye, you just inoculated yourself, right? Um, here, how about this gross you out? Um, coronavirus is not the only pathogen out there. So hepatitis A is spread by, by ingesting other people's fecal material. So you go to a restaurant or a public place and someone doesn't wash their hands, you've all seen those persons. I know it's no one who's a member of the Kentucky Academy of Science. The person who does not wash their hands after they use the bathroom and touches the handle on the door and then goes out and the next person goes to touch the same handle and open the door and then they scratch their eye, which itches and now they've just inoculated a mucous membrane with the virus and then they get hepatitis, right? So surface contact. Aerosols, we don't understand fully well, but I, there is some component of this. We just haven't been able to quantify it enough where the viral uh, particles stay suspended in, in microscopic droplets in the air. Um, that's why being in a closed space for an extended period of time can be an exposure, even if you're not within six feet. And then the third one, and the, by far the most common, 
is just being too close to someone and coughing or sneezing and having those droplets reach someone else. Okay, great. And Amanda, feel free to jump in. Uh, Amanda, our executive director, submitted this question. I don't know if it's hers or she got it from somewhere else, but she was, uh, her question is, once a vaccine is available, will we be able to somehow know uh, to issue a card or some other sort of proof of vaccination? Do you foresee a proof of vaccination being required for school or any other activities? Yeah, so Trent, um, the federal government, it, there's a number of things the federal government has done well, okay? I mean, I can be critical on other fronts, but there are a number of things they've done really well. Um, and at this phase of the vaccine rollout, they are purchasing all the vaccine. So no American's gonna have to pay for the vaccine. They're gonna ship the vaccine with syringes, needles, alcohol swabs, and proof of vaccination cards. So every person who gets a vaccine will get a card. At least that's what we're told when you get vaccinated. And every person who gets vaccinated will be registered in the vaccine registry, in the immunization registry. So we have a record because most of these vaccines require two doses. Now that's not uncommon. Other vaccines require that too. So that's not a failure. That's just sometimes our immune system requires more than one exposure to a stimulus to generate a response. But you have to get the second dose of, with the same vaccine you got the first dose. You can't just jump around. So we have to track and make sure you get the same dose the second time. So you'll get a card, you'll be in an immunization registry, and then we don't know yet. We have to see how effective these are, how much success they have in preventing infection. And, and then it is possible that this will change what people can or can't do. Like if, you're, if, if everybody in a workplace is vaccinated, well, maybe you don't have to have the same quarantine rules. Maybe you can have some relaxation. Maybe if, if in order to go into a, an entertainment venue, you have to be able to show a vaccination proof and then you're allowed to go do activity. Maybe we can return to a lot more normal stuff if people just can demonstrate they were vaccinated. But let me be clear about this. There's no one talking about mandating the vaccine. We will inform people. We will tell them about the risks and the benefits and people will have the choice to get vaccinated. All right, so no one is talking about mandating this vaccine for people, but we do wanna make sure everybody has access to it so that everybody has an equal chance and an equitable chance to be protected. Absolutely. Um, the next question is from our treasurer, Rodney King. How do you fight disinformation when you hear people say that COVID-19 is no worse than the flu? With great difficulty and limited success. Um, this is a good example. The statistics are what they are. I mean, now look, the mortality rate was sky high in the beginning because we weren't testing many people and we weren't finding everyone. This is just a, a, this is a story of numerators and denominators, okay? The mortality rate, the, the actual mortality rate for this disease, um, the initial estimates were maybe 0.7% up to one and a half percent. We never thought it was a 10% mortality rate just for the disease. Now, if the healthcare system is overwhelmed, people start dying because we can't get to them and we can't treat them. And then the mortality rate, the actual mortality rate goes higher. But for the disease itself, and, and by way of comparison, influenza is about one-tenth of a percent. So about one in a thousand people die from the flu. Uh, we thought this was one in a hundred. 
all right? So it's an order of magnitude or 10 times more lethal. It could be that it's lower than that. It could be anywhere from 0.5 to, to 1% or so. Our mortality rate in Kentucky, I think it's down to 1.2 or 1.3% now. That's because we're testing so aggressively here. We're finding a lot more people who are positive and our statistics are probably getting more and more accurate. See, I'll use these words that scientists know and I'm only dabbling in. It's like an asymptotic line, right? You kind of approx you approach some destination, but you will never reach it, right? So we are getting closer and closer to truth, even though we are probably never going to find absolute truth. Is that right? Did I use an asymptotic line? Did I describe that right? <laughs> so, so as we do that, um, I, I think that the mortality rate could even be a little less than 1%, but let's just say it's eight-tenths of a percent. That's still eight times more lethal than the flu. And what people don't realize is for influenza, it changes from year to year. And some of us probably have some limited protective benefit from prior exposure. And then when you put a vaccine into the mix, even if only 50 to 60% of people get a vaccine that's 50% effective, then you take a quarter of the population who's now no longer susceptible. It blunts all of that stuff. It blunts the number of people who get infected. It blunts the mortality. It probably mitigates the severity of the disease for some who aren't fully protected. For SARS-CoV-2, for COVID-19, 100% of the population is susceptible all at the same time. People don't realize what that means. That means if 1% of Kentuckians die, it's, it's um, 45,000 people, all right? Now, do, and break the numbers down. And Trent, I, I see this session, uh, just to give you reassurance, I can drop it one minute, but I also have my next appointment's at 2.30. So if you're having fun and this doesn't mess up your schedule, I'll stay a little longer. So if you take one third of the population of four and a half million. So now you have 150,000 get sick and 1% of them die, 15,000 people die. So it is not inconceivable by any measure that one third of an entire state could get infected over a 12 month period. And instead of having the governor announce that 1500 people have died, we could have an order of magnitude greater. We could have had 15,000 people die in a year. Is that so? Again, I'm not in this audience, I'm not worried. I'm not trying to instill fear. But but I think that the people who have dismissed this as not serious just don't understand the math and what it means. This is still very dangerous. And I'll tell you this, we're doing some really neat serology studies, so antibody studies to try to find out how many people have been infected in Kentucky and how many people have an antibody response. The American Red Cross, Kentucky Blood Bank, um, and others are doing their own versions of this. I, I haven't looked at the latest numbers here, so I, I don't want to quote the wrong ones, but it is certainly less than, on average, it's less than five to 6% of Kentuckians who've been exposed. So probably 95 to 90, 94 to 95% of all Kentuckians still have not yet been exposed. Although that number is rapidly changing because the disease is escalating so severely right now. So that means we could still have a horrible crisis unfold, no doubt, no doubt over the next two to three months. We really appreciate you uh, extending us a little bit of extra time. We, do, we don't have any, we have a break uh, until 2.30. So uh, if you have a few extra minutes, we, we have plenty of questions to go through. And I, I, won't, I won't keep you on here forever, but uh, if, if you're okay with answering a few more questions, let's, we're let's okay. Do this. 
let's let's go 15 more minutes till 2:15, and then you guys still have a break and i can get ready for my next appointment okay perfect we appreciate that very very much um the next one is from uh dirk and he asked how effective is taking your temperature if you're asymptomatic well if you're asymptomatic taking your temperature has no value so but here's the challenge so 20 to 40% of people may not have symptoms and still be in contagious, but still 60% of people have symptoms. All right. So here's kind of the, the logic on this, right? It's the low hanging fruit. If you have a fever, you have a problem. So if there's one objective thing we can do, and it is relatively inexpensive to do it, and it doesn't hurt you or harm you or cause you physical discomfort, why wouldn't we do the one thing we can do that could potentially take an obvious person who should not expose other people, right? So it's really kind of low adverse risk. I mean, it's not no cost to buy thermometers, but at this point, people have thermometers for the most part. So it's a matter of it's a tool we have and it does have value, but is it imperfect and incomplete? Absolutely it is, but that doesn't mean it's not with value. Very good. So the, the next question is about the efficacy of UV rays. And uh, they weren't sure if that's pseudoscience or not, you know, using UV rays to um, mitigate the effect of, of COVID. It is not pseudoscience. There is scientific basis to support that. Um, I think it's difficult to quantify, but I don't, it's not impossible to quantify and people have been working to do it. There's even, and I won't mention, well, I, I'll mention it because we're in Kentucky. Big Ass Fans has even designed fans and lights with UV. Now, I, I can't validate that. And, and I have to worry whenever I say things like this, now I'll get a phone call or an email asking me to, but I mean, I think there is science to support that. I mean, in hospitals, they have UV lights placed in strategic areas and operating rooms. So I, I think there, there is some validity to it. The challenge is, you know, it is not inexpensive. Uh, uh, so if a little digital thermometer for a few bucks or 10 bucks is one thing, it's a lot more expensive to buy a UV light system and install it somewhere. And so, where, where I have to kind of balance reality and, and, and pragmatism is um, I'm not talking about what is optimal at times. I'm talking about what is possible. I have to deal with the world of possible when you're dealing with four and a half million people. We strive to get towards optimal, but, but you're always dealing with the realities of what is possible, not, not what is always aspirationally desirable. Absolutely. I've heard, I've heard about that and read a little bit about the big ass fans. That's really interesting. I'm glad to hear a little bit more about that. Uh, I'm going to jump off and do some, uh, some, some Facebook questions now, if you don't mind. And the first one asks about Tracy is asking about hazmat suits in, in nursing homes. I, I, um, I just scribbled these down quickly in between everything. So I, I didn't get the full thing, but, um, she basically had a, a story about not being able to visit her, her, I guess, grandparents in the nursing home and wondering perhaps about the efficacy of using hazmat suits for, to, to visit, for them to come outside and hug or. Yeah. So gosh, this has been one of the many cruelties of this disease. Think about this, all of you, is, is, is when you're sick, when a, when a loved one is sick, 
it's a natural thing for us. Again, remember that physical contact. I mean, if you're a good doctor, you learn this. Think about this when you've gone to see a medical doctor. Do you feel a little cheated if the doctor doesn't, doesn't touch you? I mean, if they don't put their hand on you, if they don't use a stethoscope, if they don't, if you say my knee hurts and they never touch your knee, do you feel like you got what you were seeking? I think you, probably most of you don't. And so if you have a friend or a family member, what do you naturally do? Not everybody's a hugger, but what do most people do? You get together for Thanksgiving and you see your cousin you haven't seen for a year. What do people usually do? You give a hug, right? This is a disease that has forced us to be apart at times when our very fiber would have us want to be close together. And so nursing homes are just one example of that. Um, I would say it's, it's really not pragmatically realistic to have everybody have a full body hazmat suit and that most people are not gonna wear a full body hazmat suit. I mean, like a totally enclosed head, arms, legs, hands, feet, everything to go in. They're gonna look like, you know, something out of a science fiction movie. It's, it's not pragmatic, it's not realistic. Um, and if this were the way we were gonna be for like the next five years of our lives, it'd be one thing, it's been devastating enough for this one year. I think what we really have to sincerely hope is that um, these vaccines help enough that we can keep, we can lower risk to the point and the testing gets better. Now we've had a lot of advances in testing, but we still don't really have as highly reliable as we need and as commonly and cheaply available as we need rapid testing um, for people to have access to uh, everywhere we need it to. I think that the combination of better, more rapid, more accurate testing coupled with vaccines and coupled with better therapeutics, I think we're gonna find over the next four to six months that we can relax a number of these restrictions a little bit more, but where people want us just to turn them off, they can't just be turned off. It's gonna to have to be a, a relaxation as we see how um, people respond to this. Um, but I don't. I just don't think that those suit that the um, that kind of approach is going to be pragmatic. And remember, we can't just say, "Well, if one person brings their suit, you got it," um, because we're such a rules-based society. You kind of have to put in place something that can apply to most or everybody. Um, so again, not, not poo-pooing the concept. Just pragmatically speaking, I don't think it it can be done. Understand. All right. Thank you for that. Uh, Laura has asked a very detailed question. I'm a geologist, not a, not a medical expert, but um, she'd ask a question about mutations, um, about, six, about the 614, 614 mutation. And um, do you believe this genotype is less vicious, uh, less fatality rate than previous strands? Has there, has, has there been changes as we've gone along, basically? You know what I love about this? So I'm hearing the 614 mutation. So I... I, I, I joked, this is one of the times I got the governor to laugh out loud at a press conference. I, I have little kids and I gotta be careful. I shouldn't even repeat this because it, it, just, it just brings about more stress. Little kids and, and um, senior women seem to be my demographic. I get letters from both. Um, I love my letters, I read them all. I don't respond to everyone, it's just only one of me. I don't have time, but I respond to some of them as, as much as I can when I have time. But um, so, 
one of the thing, messages I delivered for the little kids at the press conference was when you don't know an answer, don't fib. Just say, I don't know an answer, okay? So I don't, but the 614 mutation, that's one I don't know, okay? So let me put that out there. But now let me tell you what I do know. Um, RNA viruses have a, a, a clear preponderance for mutation. They, they clearly change. This virus appears, as I understand it, to not be changing particularly rapidly, which gives some hope that the vaccine will have benefit, even if we have to iteratively uh, change the vaccine over time. We already have experience with that. We do that for influenza every year. Um, I think that we do have examples already where the virus has mutated in some times. And, and there was one instance where one strain may be more contagious, but less uh, virulent. So more people were, it was easier to spread, but if you got it, you were less likely to get severely hurt by it. And so I, I think there absolutely is, is very good reason to believe the virus is and will change, that that will change the way we're affected by it. Um, and we're just going to, we're on that journey. We don't get a vote in that. We're just going to have to see how we navigate that as we go along. All right, great. We have, we're running short on time here. So I, I'll have, I'll finish up with two, two last questions. And uh, one of them is from Carrie and she asks, is it better to use a daily average or a rolling seven day average when reporting cases? There's got to be some statisticians out there somewhere who listen to this. But when you do the data, when you do it daily, it's just full of noise. So what ends up happening is you have these peaks and these these peaks and valleys that don't really convey what's happening. And so you have to smooth the data somehow so that you get something that is interpretable by a human and actionable. And so the way we do that, at least for these metrics, some of these metrics, is you do a rolling seven-day average. And, and then what you do is you take away the debate and distraction about, well, why did this go up or down this day? And you start looking at, as a snapshot for a system with all sorts of variables you can't constrain, how do you constrain something to make the, the statistic you produce useful to people to make decisions? And so, some, so we know this. We don't do the same number of tests every day of the week. So in healthcare is like this. People go see doctors or get surgeries, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And there are fewer things done on Friday than there are, well, that's not, let me, there's more testing done, less of it done on Saturday and Sunday. And then the results don't show up on Monday and Sunday. And so what happens is if we presented all those individual data points, it just looks like this up and down, up and down, up and down. But if we average it out over a week, you see a more more of an undulation, and then it just it makes more sense. Um, you use trend lines to do the same thing, right? You could take those staggered dots, and we could just put a trend line through them all, and you reach the same conclusion. But again, we're talking with trying to communicate with the public at large in a way that distills it to something that that the average person could interpret and understand. So a seven-day average rolling average seems to work for that for the most part. All right, great. I have one more quick question, then a, then a summary here, and we'll, we'll be finished. We'll let you get back to your, to your real job. Um, Melinda asked if we could get, just get, a, get an update on hospital capacity here in Kentucky. You know, this is amazing. Um, you know, if you ask 10 doctors for 10 opinions, you'll probably get 15 opinions from the same 10 doctors, right? And there's all those stories, right? I could have a light bulb joke if I was quick enough on my feet. But um, what ends up happening, uh, I get tired in the end of the day. You were asked, oh, hospital capacity. So 
it turns out it's not so easy to say exactly how many hospital beds there are in, in a state because it depends how you define a hospital bed. Now, what type of hospital bed? And then is it just the bed or does the bed also have to have like wall oxygen with it? Or do you actually have to have a nurse to staff the bed? Like I could have a thousand beds and enough nurses for a hundred of them. So do I have a thousand beds or do I have a hundred beds? And it depends, do you define a bed with a nurse or a bed alone, right? So for hospital capacity, we have plenty of bricks and mortar hospital capacity at this time. I don't think in the, in the immediate weeks and months ahead, the physical space within a, the hospital buildings will be the biggest problem. The biggest problem will be, do we have enough properly trained and licensed people to staff all those beds? Two, do we have the right types of people? Remember I said, this is a disease that put people in the intensive care unit in very high proportions. So you could have a nurse or a doctor, well, let's use nurses. You could have a nurse who's perfectly qualified to work on a regular medical floor, but does not have the same training to work in an intensive care unit, right? Or you could have a nurse who works in a doctor's office who isn't really of the right training and experience to work in the regular hospital bed, let alone an ICU. So the problem is, you don't have always the right people and bed combinations. So I don't think the problem will be the beds in the hospitals at the moment. It will be a challenge with having enough staff because people, um, the, the, the healthcare workers get sick too and they get exposed and they get exposed in their social lives more than they do at the hospital. Let me tell you, um, healthcare workers are people just like the rest of us and they go back home and they sometimes don't wear their mask at home and stuff and they get exposed and then they're quarantined too. And so then you don't have people to work at the hospital. Um, so I, I, but I do think I will leave you with this. This is not to instill fear, but it is to say, uh, if people aren't concerned that we could start, you, you could get a phone call from a hospital and say, we're going to cancel your colonoscopy because we don't have enough space for you. And you could get a phone call and say, we're going to cancel your procedure, your surgery, you know, your hysterectomy, because we don't have space right now to do that. And we can't have you stay overnight in the hospital. So we have to cancel that. And it will, we'll reschedule what we don't know when, but we'll reschedule at some point. I think people will probably, that's already happened a little bit in Kentucky. I think it will happen more often um, as we go forward. And then the problem is, and I'm, remember I'm an emergency physician. I know what it's like to have people in the waiting room for four hours and they're mad and they start shouting and they're angry. Who, I mean, who wants to wait for four hours when you went to an emergency room? But here's the thing, if there's no one to take care of you in the back and there's no place to put you, waiting is the only option. Um, and so I think people, um, unfortunately, like I said, if we don't learn the lessons that science tells us, we will learn them when the virus infects enough people. So we will reach a similar conclusion just with more people getting sick to produce the result. So I hope we can um, prevent that. I think we've avoided it for a long time, but we need to avoid it um, a bit longer and keep up the effort. So let me, as I wrap up here and I'll leave you the last words, Trent. Let me thank you very much. This has been a fun distraction in the midst of sandwiched by trying to address two other unsolvable problems. And so um, this was a nice reprieve from going back to these other two things that I have to deal with. Um, so thank you very much for the opportunity to be here. I hope you found this somewhat enjoyable. And I hope in addition to learning about COVID though, the, the bigger points come across about, um, you know, you can, I think I'm a bit of a nerd. You can be a nerd, you can be a dork, you can enjoy learning, you can talk about it 
can celebrate it, but you can also use it in ways to help people um, relate to you uh, and help your own story and message kind of be better received and better understood. So if in some small way that combination has been a valuable uh, you know, tool or useful to the state, I hope it has been. But, but for you all, I hope you found some value in this and I hope you have a great meeting. Um, I'm sure, gosh, I, I, I'm serious. I got this PDF up here and I'm looking, you know, on the design of a database for linguistic atlas project, cloud VR therapy for PTSD treatment. I mean, tree community assessment of an old growth forest on the south facing slope at the Boone Cliffs Nature Preserve. I mean, this, this is a weekend, you know, someone who is just a knowledge lover, it's, it's just a total feast. And so I hope you all enjoy this. And uh, thanks for the opportunity, Trent. And back to you to uh, bring us home. Well, we, we very much appreciate it. I'm going to read you a couple comments here. And we, we hope you will join us in the future and become a member. And, and you know, we, we have all kinds of fun here at Kentucky Academy of Science. Uh, a few people have noted just, just how much they appreciate you being here and giving extra time to us. Thank you for your words, wisdom, and representation of science during this pandemic. It's people like you. Uh, I respect and admire your leadership. Thank you very much for your qualities of leadership during this, uh, during this time. Um, lots, lots of similar comments like that. So it, it is very much appreciated. And uh, I think we all got a lot out of it. We want to thank you. We want to thank all of the members who are here and um, who listened, and especially to Amanda Fuller, who put all this together. So thank you all very much. And uh, did you have something else? No, thank you very oh, much. I, enjoy your, um, enjoy your meeting. <laughs> all right. Have a good one, everybody. Thank Thanks. you. Bye-bye.